You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. High up in the Himalaya Mountains of South Asia, there's a crisis quietly developing. Described as the Water Tower of Asia, this region is host to the third largest mass of ice after the Arctic and Antarctic regions. Fresh water from glacial melt feeds most of the major rivers across Asia that billions of people depend on for access to water. But as the climate warms, the pace of this melting, along with patterns of rainfall and heat, are becoming increasingly unpredictable, and it's posing a threat to lives and livelihoods. The massive Himalayan glaciers have shrunk ten times faster over the past four decades than during the previous seven centuries. I'm Jacob Gamble, broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. In partnership with the Loss and Damage Youth Coalition, we're bringing you another episode of Loss, Damage and Denial, this week speaking with young people in South Asia. to see how my community, how my people are being impacted by climate crisis and then enough action are not taken at the global level. That angers me. Therefore, I feel that anger to do everything that I can uh, to work in climate change. Shreya Casey is a Nepali climate activist and an advisor at Nepalese Youth for Climate Action. At 25 years old, Shreya's already witnessed the devastating impacts of the climate crisis. My hometown is Solukumbu, which lies at the lap of Himalayas in eastern Nepal. So, as you all know, like Nepal is synonymous with mountains. We have eight of the uh, tallest uh, mountain peak among 14 peaks in the world, and the highest mountain, Mount Everest, which is also known as Sagarmatha, goddess of sky, lies in our hometown. Therefore, like with greater than average rate of warming in the Himalayan region, uh, the snow cover has thinned uh, drastically and because of that uh, new glacier lakes are being formed in the upper regions and because of that uh, there are risk of glacier lake outburst flood so those floods may come at any time especially during monsoon seasons therefore we who live in the downstream community we always live in the persistent threat of flood and it washes away like entire villages in an instant so that has happened before my my family, uh, we used to farm, but like no matter how hard we tried, the agricultural production was so low because of new diseases, drought, invasive species, and even the sediment has choked our water supply. So because of the multitude of reasons, my family had to abandon farming because the <laughs> our production was simply not enough uh, compared to the labor we had to put in. So that is uh, one of the impact that my family has faced and unfortunately this is the story of most of the villagers in my community and also in many of the rural communities in nepal so yeah that is like kind of thing that has personally impacted me and also it is like it has also exacerbated the social um, problems for example nepal is a patriarchal huge uh, heavily patriarchal uh, society therefore men are like seen as traditional uh, providers therefore when there is uh, impact of climate change such as drought landslides and flood 
and that um, causes to reduce the food production leading to you know um, hunger cases and also uh, leading to reduced income that uh, puts pressure in men's role as traditional providers and therefore uh, in often cases men turn to alcohol to cope with those stress and like become more violent uh, and because of that the sexual harassment and also the harassment to women has been increasing particularly and because the water supplies um, has been dried up uh, girls women they have to travel a longer distance to fetch water therefore in that also many girls are being um exposed to sexual harassment which is also increased uh, uh resulted to increased number of rape and even sexual harassment so like that is also how climate crisis has exacerbated the existing social problems but i would say like when i realized that climate change is doing all of these things so as i said before i could not go back to normal life and then i decided that because climate change will impact everyone, no matter how rich we are, no matter where we are living from, no matter which gender we belong. Therefore, rather than being a victim of climate change, I decided to be a warrior. And therefore, since the last six years, I've been doing everything I can to address climate change. <laughs> Normally, the snow-covered Annapurna mountains would be visible, but they're shrouded in clouds. The monsoons have changed, bringing longer and heavier spells of rain. Mountains are not just a source of uh, water uh, for us, like it is a form of identity. It shapes us who we are, how we think, it shapes our culture and belief. Therefore, it is a very important part of who we are. And Nepal lies in the Hindukos Himalayan region, which is also known as the Third Pole. So um, the Hindukos Himalayan region is home to four global biodiversity hotspot and it is origin to 10 major river basins in Asia and it also provides essential ecosystem services uh, including fresh water and even fertile soil for agriculture to uh, more than 240 million people who has been living in mountains, hills and also in the downstream. Therefore, it also shows like uh, how important it is in terms of like natural resources as well. Agriculture and tourism, like these are the major sources of income for uh, Nepalese people. Therefore, when there is uh, like um, drought or when there is like too much or like too little rainfall and when even like when there is unexpected rainfall that has been occurring frequently in Nepal since the past few years that significantly impact agriculture for example that uh, like last year also during October and like before that also in 2020 also during October season like which is kind of post-monsoon season um, like there was heavy rainfall for um, three days like more than three days continuously and that uh, like um, uh, heavily impacted the ready-to-be-harvested crop and that also led to regional uh, food insecurity and like that also uh, impacted people's livelihood. And another one is tourism. During October, like uh, it is um, the famous uh, month for trekking and because Nep uh, Nepal is known uh, for its mountain, beautiful natural resources, uh, beautiful forest and so on. So many tourists come to uh, in, in Nepal during October season for trekking and then because of the heavy rainfall it washed away like um, the existing developmental 
infrastructure such as breeze, electricity poles, schools, and even hospitals. And that also impacted the number of tourists uh, coming to the um, uh, Nepal for uh, tourism purpose. And that also directly impacted people's livelihoods. So that is also how, like, because we depend closely on the natural resources. So when climate change directly impact the nature, we are impacted in several of the ways. And another part is like, uh, especially if we see in the higher altitude regions uh, in Nepal, like uh, uh, for example, where I belong from, uh, when there are like um, uh, unexpected floods, unexpected landslides, it is destroying the existing hardly built developmental infrastructures because Nepal is like one of the least developed countries. And even now also we are struggling to construct road bridges, you know, this might sound very different to people living in the global north where everything seems to be already and everything seems to be constructed. But we in Nepal, we are even uh, struggling to make like roads, hospitals, even schools. And therefore, even though the schools that we have hardly built, you know, using the little resources that we have, that are also being destroyed by the climate change impact. I cannot stay silent. I cannot afford silence because it is my people, it is my family, it is me who is being in the front line of the climate crisis, even though we have done nothing to cause climate crisis. For example, if we see the emissions of Nepal in the global scale, we produce like less than 0.5% of the global carbon emissions, yet we lie like in top four countries to face the disastrous impact of climate change. We lie at the forefront. I actually grew up seeing this disaster happening around me um, and uh, yeah, I saw the devastation by my own eyes. I witnessed um, the disparity among the people, you know, the vulnerability uh, and the risk um, those climate change are posing them. Erfan Ula is a climate and social activist from Pakistan. Currently, he's a youth advisor at the Global Centre on Adaptation and has previously worked across a number of non-government organisations. I am more from the northwest part of, of, the, uh, of, of the country, uh, in the province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which is also among the most vulnerable provinces um, in, in, in the country. And, and in, during flood 2020, 2010 and 2022, that region has been also severely impacted because of its geography, um, morphology, and all those different factors play an important role. But the most important thing was the um, vulnerability of the local people, because um, we having this uh, industry river basin where people are living near those basin, and every year um, when glacier melts in the north of the country um, and, and and during monsoon monsoon season, so usually it's lead to the flooding, um, and infected people on on those specific regions. Um, why? Because on one hand, their vulnerability, um and lack of resilience, but on the other hand, also the different um, climate uh, factors, glacier melting um, in, in, in monsoon, um, somehow trigger those, um, those, um, those disasters. 
Last year, Pakistan endured one of the worst floods in its history, killing over 1,700 people with property damages in the billions of dollars. At a time of global food shortages, it's catastrophic. More than 2 million acres of agricultural land is now underwater and at least 700,000 cattle are dead. The country's planning minister puts the damage at more than $10 billion, a tough bill to pick up in a country already suffering from an economic crisis. The devastation was first ever and on such a big scale that not the government, not the local people were prepared for it. So still the recovery is, on, on, is going on and I would, I would say it will take many years for them to recover. Why? Because one third of the country was underwater. Uh, so it's mean that it's not for country like, like Pakistan, which is a developing countries. Um, and uh, at the moment going through a lot of crisis. So on one side is climate crisis. There's also political crisis and we just pop out of the economic crisis because of COVID and all this. So it, it was, uh, I, I would say the time for the country to, to, to you know, they're struggling a lot because the infrastructure on one hand was not really equipped um, um, to the to, to the uh, event like the 2020 flood. Uh, and and first, for first time, it was like such a severe event uh, in such a big scale um, that the country was not really prepared for it. Because we also had a flood in 20, 2010, which also impacted the country. But this flood, I think, was one in the history, I would say, a 100-year flood um, that impacted the whole country. And for the country, it's super, super difficult to recover because um, there is not enough resources in the country. And, and still, the country is struggling with it, with economic crisis, with also with its political crisis. But on the top is this climate crisis. Um, so still, you will see some areas which where the water is still standing, you know, um, uh, and also um, the uh, not just the economic impacts, for sure it was economic impact was on the top, but also the non-economic impacts and the non-economic losses, which still not been addressed. And by non-economic loss, I mean um, the loss of culture, the loss of biodiversity, the loss of... Um, uh, social life, you know, and 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 different help impacts. Uh, so, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, and also uh, in some of the area where the water was standing, it triggered the waterborne diseases, and 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 people were going through malaria, chlorine, and all those waterborne diseases. So the focus at the moment was just on economic losses, and still there's not enough support from outside world is coming. Um, you know, but on the other hand, non-economic losses is totally overlooked. Um, so there's not enough focus on um on on non-economic losses, which maybe at some point are more than economic losses. Um, so just to um to to sum up, the recovery is still going on, and I think it will take many, many, many years for the country to recover. Because uh, a lot of resources is needed uh, and resources, I mean, financing is needed uh, for those affected region, for those affected people to build their resilience. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. You mentioned 
how finance is needed, not only to you know alleviate the economic impacts, but you're also talking about the non-economic impacts, which is really important. What do you see as the role of richer countries in helping Pakistan adapt uh, and mitigate the, the future impacts of climate change? I think developed country had a lot of role. Why? Because our contribution to greenhouse gas emission is less than 1%. But we are among the top 10 most vulnerable and affected countries. And the flood 2020 is a recent example of it. And then if you see who are the main contributor of greenhouse gas emission is the developed countries. So, you know, for, for climate justice perspective and to use this approach of um, climate justice, you know, it, it's, it's important that polluter pay, to use the polluter pay principle, because the, the, those are the one contributing to climate change. But then someone living in Pakistan is facing the impacts of climate change are are facing you know the result of um greenhouse gas emission so it, it's really important to develop country jump in and help those affected people because those damages are the result of the wrongdoing they do so it's it's really important to use this um principle of pay polluter polluter should pay now the question is how should they pay? I think that there is some some mechanism and stru some structure already been in place, so they can support the budget, so they can support the resilience infrastructure, so they can invest in the capacity building of the people. But in reality, and especially if we take the example of Pakistan, it's not happening here on the ground. Although there was many pledges um last year for from many country that they will jump in to support Pakistan. But if you see the numbers, or if you see the funding coming from those developed countries, uh, that is, it's not well enough. And at some point, there's also not much funding flowing into, into the country. But then another thing, we should also think not just about recovery or relief. We should think of investing more into development. And by development, I mean, infrastructure development um, and resilience development. Why? Because we know the climate impacts will will come frequent with um, uh, and the district event will having um, will come with more magnitude with, with, with frequency. So it's really important for the developed country to invest in the resilience infrastructure. In the infrastructure, in 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 the roads, and in, in housing, you know, so so this 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 I think so should be an integral part of it, and it should be the responsibility. You know, they shouldn't do it, um, you know, um, like okay, with the with the willing are okay, they should do it or not. But I think it should be the responsibility, and it it should be important for them to pay. Um, you know, and, and I think so it's it's also really important that you know we think and we somehow have like the shift from solidarity to responsibility. Because the develop developing country are not just up there to 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 see their solidarity and they just come up with a statement, you know, of solidarity that okay, we're having sympathy, it will not work at the end. We really need something on the ground, you know, and we need them to take the responsibility of the wrongdoing they are to so. Um, so to sum up, yes, developed countries should jump in. Why? Because it's it's those who are responsible for it. 
uh, who are creating those uh, extreme event are contributing at least those extreme event in in developing country Ten of Asia's biggest rivers come from two spots on the Tibetan plateau in the top northeastern corner and the southwestern corner two spots is 10 rivers 3.6 billion people depend on those rivers and their headwaters are in two spots on earth Dr Ruth Gamble is a lecturer and researcher at La Trobe University teaching environmental humanities and asian history with a research focus on the rivers of the Himalaya you have a situation where you have large governments controlling a very complicated social ecosystem, right? So, so society and ecosystem in the mountains. And uh, what happens with climate change is it tends to, which we're going into now, they're experiencing it now. You don't, no one in the mountains is arguing, oh, is climate change real? No, they can see the snow shrinking. They can see their water shrinking, their water sources shrinking. Their, their fields are drying up. They know it's happening now. And what that tends to do is amplify all the other threats. Right, so you already were dealing with governance issues. You're already dealing with kind of an extractive industries from lowland countries coming up to take things from the mountains. And climate change is just it just exaggerates all of that constantly. Mm. And the other thing to remember is that these mountains it goes up by altitude. The higher you go up, the faster climate change is happening. So above about three thousand meters is three times as fast as anywhere else on the planet. The Himalaya were a site of political upheaval in the 20th century, with India freeing itself from the British Empire in the south, while Mao Zedong led China to a communist revolution in the north. The two powers agreed. The Himalaya was the natural boundary between them, but there was little acknowledgement of the distinct polities and people who resided in the mountains. So you basically had, uh, until the 1940s, you had a whole bunch of small kingdoms and, and areas in the mountains. Um, in northern Pakistan, there was one group. In, in uh, Himachal Pradesh, what is now Himachal Pradesh in India and other groups, Nepal was a little bit more fractured. Tibet was separate and had separate regions. Uh, Bhutan, all of these different areas. And then you had... Uh, it was almost as if in the 1940s and 50s the whole world played a game of musical chairs with, like, global borders. Mm. And at the end of that time, I was like, all right, now we fix the borders and no one can move anywhere past this, right? Um, and we have, like, this international order that's trying to keep everything in place. But it doesn't – it didn't really work for the people of the mountains because they got stuck within nation states that they didn't necessarily have a lot to do with. Mm. And, and that meant that you had big lowland communities, China, India, um, Pakistan, controlling upland regions that they didn't have much information about, much cultural connection with, uh, and they, were, they would put their wants and needs onto the mountains rather than responding to the people on the ground. And so I think um, that's led to a situation where you get, you know, policies made in Beijing and Delhi uh, at zero degrees altitude being rolled out uh, on mountaintops with at 3,000 <laughs> metres above sea level mm. and you end up with a whole lot of uh, problems from that kind of geopolitical situation. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that uh, China, India and Pakistan have disputed borders. Uh, so 
Pakistan and India have a disputed border in the Himalayan region around a glacier that's called Siachen Glacier. And they have been positioned, one, one army or another has been positioned on that glacier for the past 50 years. And it's slowly kind of melting because of all of the army officers on it. Uh, and then China and India have two sections of disputed borders, one in an area called Ladakh, where they often fight and they have lots of soldiers up there, and another on the other side in, uh, in between Burma and uh, Bhutan. Uh, where they disagree on the border. So because they're not agreeing on the border, they're not cooperating on conservation, river management, um, and they are also got all these army officers up in a cryosphere or in the ice, which is, like, bad. I mean, you think about the way that people talk about Antarctic, right? They're like, don't go there, you'll ruin it. So this is like a cryosphere as well, but in that space they have uh, tens of thousands of soldiers. If you wanted to do something positive in the region in the future, you need to have ground up practices where you listen to the local people about, uh, follow their lead because they know their area uh, and work out practices that are operating at that level. And that could be across international borders, which are pretty artificial anyway, in terms of the environment mm. and uh, um, working in these little areas and multiple Coming to grips with the multiplicity of the country of the Himalaya, I think, is the most important thing. If you could come up with a vision for a climate positive future, what would you want that to look like? The focus should be more on locally led adaptation and addressing loss and damage locally. Uh, but then the ask is financed, funding is needed, you know, and, and by funding, I mean sustainable funding. In my six years of activism and, and advocacy, I've, I've realized that education is important. Like it was in the first day of my bachelor's class, I got to know about climate change. And when I know about the problem and how it is impacting us and how worse it will impact us in the future, I could not like stop myself uh, from doing climate activism. Therefore, I think the first important thing is about education, that everyone needs to know about climate change and then only we will be able to solve climate crisis. We cannot solve climate crisis when just 10%, 15%, even 50% 50, uh, 50 of the population is aware of climate crisis. Everyone needs to know about this. Therefore, I think uh, I, I would like to see more... Uh, investment in climate education so that everyone, every young people, even though they are engaged in the formal sector or even non-formal sector, they know about climate crisis. So I think this is one of the uh, key part. And uh, in the future, <laughs> I I hope we'll not talk about climate change anymore uh, because the climate crisis is already uh, solved and people are living in a fair and equitable world where everyone is held accountable for their actions and everyone is doing their level best, you know, in preserving the nature, in creating a climate resilient society. Uh, yeah, in the future, I do not like to see anyone talking about climate change because it does not exist anymore.
that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to all of our guests for their generous time. And thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support of this program. Thanks to the Community Radio Network as well for getting the program out to you. I'm Jacob Campbell. We'll be back at the same time next week.